In my opinion, the only problem with Guantanamo Bay is there are too many empty beds and cells there right now. We should be sending more terrorists there for further interrogation to keep this country safe. As far as I'm concerned, every last one of them can rot in hell. But as long as they don't do that, then they can rot in Guantanamo Bay. That's Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Let me contextualize that clip for you real quick. It's from a 2015 congressional hearing on closing Guantanamo Bay, a notorious military prison in Cuba where terrorists and alleged terrorists, some of whom have been subjected to cruel and unusual treatment and torture, are being held indefinitely, and which President Obama had promised to close during his presidency. Cotton had just seen evidence that, in addition to those accused of committing or plotting acts of terror, Guantanamo also held innocent men. He'd heard that the facility is used in propaganda made by extremist terrorist groups who characterize it as the epitome of the evil and hypocrisy of Western imperialism. Islamic terrorists don't need an excuse to attack the United States. They don't attack us for what they do. They attack us for who we are. It is not a security decision. It is a political decision based on a promise the president made on his campaign. To say that it is a security decision based on propaganda value that our enemies get from it is a pretext to justify a political decision. Khan's criticism of the effort to close Guantanamo was an implicit attack on President Obama. And Obama wasn't Khan's only target. In 2018, when members of Ozark Indivisible, an Arkansas-based political activist group, his constituents, wrote to Cotton about concerns with his policy, Cotton wrote his own letter. This letter is immediate notification that all communication must cease and desist immediately with all offices of U.S. Senator Tom Cotton. All other contact will be deemed harassment and will be reported to the United States Capitol Police. Tom Cotton doesn't represent politics as usual in Arkansas. Born in a small town in Yale County, Cotton would go on to Harvard, serve in the war in Iraq, where he received a bronze star, and run for political office. His election represents the success of a decades-long Republican strategy in the South, a strategy that has been successful across the United States. And he's young, ambitious, and could be a candidate for president in 2024. So, who is Tom Cotton? My name is Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, a podcast from Now This where we examine power by telling the stories of people who have it. Let's roll back to the beginning, not only of Cotton's life, but of the political movement that would create him. Cotton was born in 1977 in Dardanelle, Arkansas, population 4,745. I got in touch with a veteran Arkansas reporter to find out more. Well, I'm uh, Ernie Dumas. I am 82 years old, and I have been in journalism, I guess, since uh, 1954, however many years uh, that it's been. I had to know, where is Arkansas? Well, uh, Arkansas is uh, in the center of the country, of course, and as far away from New York and California as you can possibly get and be in the United States. But Tom Cotton is somewhat unusual, and he comes from a small rural county that's very, not very poor, but compared to the rest of the country, a very poor uh, area. Dardanelle is the largest town in the district and the only town that you could even call a, a city. Arkansas is consistently one of the poorest states in the country. Poverty is an important part of Cotton's story and the story of Southern politics. We'll get back to that. So it's, it's a rural area. There's 
very little black population. I think maybe 1% of the 20,000 or so people in the county are African-Americans. There are a few more Hispanic people who have moved in there the last uh, 20 or 30 years, but 20% of the county uh, of the population uh, lives in poverty. Uh, he's an unusual representative in that he comes from that background, but yet is an arch-conservative who advocated cutting off food stamps after he went to Congress, voted to, to try to strip the farm bill of food stamps, although uh, probably uh, 20% or 25% of the population of his county are on food stamps. That's kind of an unusual stance for a Harvard graduate and, um, and from uh, a guy from that background. His parents were not rich. His father was, uh, I think, a state employee, worked for the state health department. His mother was a school teacher. And, and as far as I know, they were liberal Democrats. I don't know. But they were, they were known as Democrats and active in the Democratic Party. How did Cotton go from Democratic parents living in a community that needed significant government assistance to the far-right politician we see today? To understand that, we have to look at the shifts in Southern politics that were already occurring when Cotton was born. Well, Arkansas before 1957 was considered a, a very moderate uh, state on, uh, on race. It was not a Deep South state. It was not the Deep South, of course, from Virginia all the way across to Louisiana and even Texas. But Arkansas was, was uh, a little more Midwestern. The, than the Deep South, and its record on race was not too bad. We wouldn't look, we examine it now, it doesn't look too good. But for the time, Arkansas was a, a fairly moderate state. Race relations were supposed to be pretty good. But remember, Little Rock, the capital of Arkansas, was home to the Little Rock Nine, which refers to the nine students who integrated Central High School in 1957 an important episode in the desegregation of America's education system. Well, I grew up in a very deeply segregated community in South Arkansas. I grew up in a very rural, poor area. And uh, segregation was a way of life, an unquestioned way of life. People grew up with it and didn't even think about it. Uh, where I went to uh, school was a little rural school district in, uh, in South Arkansas near the Louisiana border. Uh, there were 24 of us in the in the school district and uh, 24 kids in the whole district. Well, 24 white kids. Uh, and so the, the black kids uh, living in the woods around uh, us didn't go to school. They didn't have a school. And I didn't think anything more about that. Uh, it, when I got on the bus and my black playmates uh, were standing beside the road when I got on the bus to go to school, and I was a little jealous of them. And it was only uh, as uh, almost as an adult I began to realize uh, how wrong that was, and uh, everything was was uh, segregated. Uh, the black kids and black uh, parents and didn't have health care. They couldn't go see the doctor. They weren't treated at the hospitals, and they did not uh, could not get jobs in any of the even clerks in stores or anything else. That was the segregated South in Arkansas, particularly Little Rock, which had uh, desegregated its bus system the year before and elected a uh, kind of a progressive uh, liberal mayor who desegregated the water fountains in the city hall and so forth. So Arkansas was considered a kind of uh, a moderate uh, progressive state, particularly Little Rock. After the passage of the Civil Rights Act, most of the South, all the deep South states uh, gradually 
uh, became uh, uh, Republican states, both in the state houses and statewide offices and members of Congress. But it didn't work in Arkansas immediately because in 1964, when, the civil, when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act and Lyndon Johnson signed it into law, the Republican Party in Arkansas was represented by Winthrop Rockefeller, probably the most liberal politician in America. And in 1966, Winthrop Rockefeller was elected governor, a champion of civil rights, high taxes, and all of those kinds of things. So why did Arkansas elect Tom Cotton? Specifically, when you're looking at like a candidate like Tom Cotton, when he's running for Senate, this is a guy who went to Harvard. Not because anyone gave a donation, but because he just worked hard to get into Harvard. And then he volunteers for the military. I mean, that's something that, you know, would really resonate with Arkansans um, that are lo- always looking for something to feel good about. That's Angie Maxwell, director of the Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society and an associate professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. She's written extensively about the Southern strategy. It's what molded today's Republican Party and the party's strength in the South. This began with the failed presidential run of Barry Goldwater, the far-right Arizona senator who won the Republican primary in 1964, in part by opposing the Civil Rights Act, a bill that ended segregation in public places and racial job discrimination. You know, really basic human rights stuff. The short version is that the Goldwater wing of the party, in a big rift, kind of wins you know, his nomination in 64 to the great dismay of a lot of Republicans, pro-civil rights Republicans, which, by the way, may, is why Arkansas is a little bit unique, because Winthrop Rockefeller starts the Republican Party, the modern one here, and he's from that pro-civil rights wing. And so it affects Arkansas differently. But in general, that Goldwater wing really, you know, plays up that Goldwater voted against the 64 Civil Rights Act. And people like Strom Thurmond switch their party ID and go on the stump for Goldwater. And because of that, you know, Goldwater wins five deep South states, which is a, you know, a big deal for a Republican at that time. Now, he loses everywhere else uh, except for his home state of Arizona. And so at that point, the Republicans go back to the drawing board like we all do post-elections And they have another kind of schism about do they continue to try to cut a course to an electoral college victory through the solid Democratic South? Do they pursue that or do they, you know, come up with another strategy? All of the South was uh, was Democratic during most of that period from before the Civil War and long afterward. And. That began to change in 1964 after uh, President Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act. And, uh, and as he told aides uh, after signing the Civil Rights Act, uh, that he was afraid that he had uh, lost the South for the Democrats for the next 50 years. And sure enough, uh, in the years after 1964, uh, the South largely became, over the years after that, uh, a Republican stronghold. Uh, people shifted from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, which had kind of changed its stripes from uh, the liberal Emancipation Party to the more conservative party. And 
most of the South shifted with that. And Nixon comes along, even though he had run a very pro-civil rights campaign in 1960 when he lost to Kennedy, um, and tweaks Goldwater's language um, so that it's not as abrasive. Nixon pioneered a watered-down approach to rhetoric opposing civil rights for all Americans. But something was missing. And Maxwell sees that missing ingredient in the anti-equal rights amendment movement. Equal rights amendment is a constitutional amendment stating, a very short amendment stating that, you know, women are equal citizens, you know, under the law. Um, It passes Congress, the House and the Senate by overwhelming majorities in the 90 percentile and sails through ratification in 30 states in less than a year. And so it looks like kind of a foregone conclusion. And then the Stop ERA movement really picks up. The Republican Party is after 76 when Carter wins and takes those, did their Southern inroads, kind of washes them away. Like, what are they going to do at that point? And that's when... Phyllis Schlafly, who is very involved both with Goldwater's campaign and with the Stop ERA movement, which stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges, and who championed the slogan as part of the Stop ERA of family values. The whole family values thing has lasted. The intersection between kind of racial hierarchy and these traditional gender roles is so interwoven that it's it's. It's hard to even untangle, and it's not something people are even necessarily conscious of now. But white supremacy was justified in the pre-Civil War times as, you know, necessary because of the threat, particularly of African-American men towards white women. They realize they can win a lot more Southern white women voters um, if they kind of double down on traditional gender roles. And honestly, really push back against feminists. And because of that, Reagan picks up enormous numbers of Southern women in 80 and then even more in 84. And we do have data showing that it's heavily correlated with those women's attitudes on the ERA. It's also really important to understand the nature of religion in the South and the way it kind of infects everyday life. And to know that the Southern Baptist Convention specifically, which is the largest denomination, I mean, there's every denomination in the region, but that's the that's the largest, that it really changes from what it was most of the 20th century to what it becomes post-1979. In 1979, of a small faction of the SBC that were fundamentalist and were very concerned about the social changes happening in the country and that the moderate Baptists, which were the majority, seemed unconcerned with or maybe just, you know, well, that's not may not be what I'm going to do for my life, but I'm not going to get involved. Right. They were kind of acquiescing to it. The fundamentals were very concerned about that. And so they hatched a plan to take over the leadership of the SBC and once they do, they double down on the submission of women, on the 
They remove women from seminary. They start really pushing a much more extreme view on abortion. That's always kind of a surprise to people like that there used to be more moderate attitudes on it. They become much more absolutist on a host of policy issues. And then they really tie their fortunes eventually to the GOP, to the great chagrin of a lot of GOP leaders, honestly. I mean, Barry Goldwater even said, like, this is not a good idea. And they try with Democrats with Carter, but he disappoints them kind of early on. And so they really embrace Republicans. And mostly that really culminates in George W. Bush's candidacy and their support for him. And so it's those three components really together that allows the Republican Party to kind of rebrand itself in this Southern image and get white Southerners to actually embrace it at the national and then at the state and local level. And it kind of rebrands the party for the nation as a whole. And that has, you know, really had an impact on the polarization in the country. But wait, wasn't Bill Clinton from Arkansas? How does that fit into this story? You had a succession of very charismatic Democratic politicians, and you're familiar with some of them, Dale Bumpers, David Pryor, Bill Clinton, Jim Guy Tucker. So it was after those people left office, and, and I guess the final straw was, it was 2008, when the Democratic Party nominated a black man, uh, Barack Obama, as president. And he became the face of the Democratic Party across the South in, in Arkansas. And after that, Arkansas, in every election, went overwhelmingly for Republicans. From 2010 on, virtually every Republican candidate for any office in Arkansas, whether it was justice of the peace, uh, county judge or sheriff or whatever, running for city council, whatever, they ran against Barack Obama. And they would find reason to put a picture of Barack Obama in their newspaper ads or whatever. So that transposed Arkansas from a, a Democratic state to a Republican state. But it's not just Arkansas. It's not just the South. Well, uh, obviously, the, when you have a, an African-American is nominated for president, and all of a sudden, the state shifts uh, dramatically uh, in its voting habits, uh, that's a sign that uh, there is still that lingering uh, resentment of, uh, of, uh, of forced equality, what people would call forced equality. So, and that still, I think, typifies the South and much of the Midwest. It's not just the South, but across the industrial Midwest, from Missouri, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all of those states, uh, the, the kind of the, uh, the workforce, I think, is not too different from Arkansas and Alabama and Mississippi. Along comes Tom. After Harvard undergrad, Cotton goes to Harvard Law where he's known as one of the rare conservatives on campus. He writes about the agonies of, quote, the cult of diversity, affirmative action, conspicuous compassion, and radical participatory democracy. He joins the army, serves in the war in Iraq, and then heads home to Arkansas. I first heard of Tom Cotton when he announced that he was running 
for Congress in the 4th uh, 4th Congressional District, which is my old congressional district uh, of South Arkansas. And uh, I didn't know anything about uh, Tom Cotton and never heard of him. But he had a great name. Tom Cotton, what kind of, what better name can you have as a politician from the South than Tom Cotton? But the main thing was he was a, a he was a warrior, and it's hard to beat that in Arkansas. We've always, whenever somebody ran as a as a warrior, <clears throat> they were elected. Uh, so Tom Cotton, he was a good-looking guy, tall, and uh, and he had this uh, war record, and uh, all the pictures of him were in his uh, battle fatigues and carrying a rifle, and uh, that was his campaign. He obviously gets a little help from the usual suspects, who saw an opportunity to push a state ready to go red over the edge. Well, the outside people, rich people like the Club for Growth and and, uh, the Koch brothers, they're financing all of that in Arkansas. That's been the rejuvenation of the Republican Party in Arkansas has largely been funded by groups like that, principally the Koch brothers, but they're not the only ones. The Club for Growth... Americans for Prosperity and those uh, kind of groups uh, of uh, very rich people. They have financed uh, the Republican candidates for the legislature all over the state, principally in uh, in the northern uh, half of the state. So that's where uh, their funding has come from. So Tom Cotton is not alone in that. That's uh, the Koch brothers have been financing Uh, that uh, uh, candidates and ballot issues as well in Arkansas. Here's Angie Maxwell. The RNC, not just the Koch brothers, had really targeted Arkansas strategically as a state where they thought they could make some inroads. And so there was a little bit of a perfect storm that kind of brought Tom Cotton to power, not to take away from his own, you know, campaign or credentials, but the Republican Party in the state had been developing, organizing, building an infrastructure. They had successfully elected Tim Hutchinson to the Senate for one term. And so that was the first Republican senator in the state since Reconstruction. And he wins. The campaign has been about the future of self-government in America, about returning our government to its constitutional roots, about reasserting our natural God-given rights and reviving the spirit of free enterprise in America. As I did in the U.S. Army once before, tonight I give you my solemn oath that in Congress I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the spirit of our beloved republic. A lot of his win also had to do with that resentment of President Obama, which pushed Arkansas further into the red. They definitely did not identify or support Obama. He was underwater for approval by like 40 points in Arkansas when Cotton was running. And so when those independents start leaning Republican nationally, it's a great opportunity for a Republican candidate. And since the RNC poured a lot of money into it, and of course there was a lot of outside money that came in from Koch brothers, it was, you know, that allowed Cotton to compete financially in a state that didn't often elect Republicans. In the House, Cotton becomes a major voice on foreign policy and frequent critic of President Obama, specifically on Iran. He spends only a few months in Congress before announcing his run for Senate. 
He wins, defeating incumbent Mark Pryor, a well-known name and heir to an Arkansas political dynasty. Cotton's war with Obama escalates. President Barack Obama uh, nominated uh, an old classmate from Harvard, Cassandra Butts. They were both in law school together, and they were, were personal friends. And so when he became president, he put her on the White House legal staff and then nominated her to become uh, the uh, ambassador to, uh, to the Bahamas. And uh, Tom Cotton put a hold on it, as a member of the Senate could. So he put a hold on her nomination and uh, did not allow the Senate to, uh, to take up her nomination. And so for better than two years, he held it up until she died. Uh, she got uh, leukemia and died. And she was an African-American, and she went to see Tom Cotton to see why he was holding up her nomination. What about her background or past or ideas caused him to want to hold up her nomination? And he said, well, nothing. He just learned that uh, she was a personal friend of Barack Obama, and he just uh, held it up simply to inflict uh, special pain on Barack Obama. And, of course, she got the, uh, leukemia and died in her, her, w- without her getting a vote before the Senate. But that just seemed to be personally uh, cruel and inhuman. Those kinds of things uh, just strike me as, uh, as unusual for, a, uh, uh, for an Arkansan. Although Cotton's spokesperson later disputed that account, it's a story of remarkable pettiness with tragic consequences. That is not what Arkansans have come to expect from their politicians. And he's just, he just doesn't seem like he's not the, uh, the common Arkansas politician who is warm and, uh, and personable. Uh, we have the history of guys like that in Arkansas, Orville Faubus, uh, Dale Bumpers, and David Pryor, Bill Clinton. Very personable, warm people and, and likable But Tom Cotton doesn't seem to be that kind of politician. Cotton also attracted attention for a fascination with Iran. During President Obama's nuclear negotiations, Cotton himself went nuclear and went around the president and wrote a letter directly to Iranian leaders trying to convince them Obama didn't have the power to make a deal with them. He got dozens of other Republican senators to sign it. I'd remind my colleagues that when we had an opportunity to insist that Barack Obama's nuclear deal with Iran be submitted to this chamber as a treaty, there was one senator that voted to insist on that. Only one. This guy. He was pointing at himself, if that wasn't clear. Meanwhile, another man who really, really didn't like Barack Obama was gaining prominence. Donald J. Trump. More after this. We're back. Again, I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we investigate power by looking at the people who have it. Is there someone you want us to do an episode about? Hit me on Twitter at SNMRRW. Now, back to Tom Cotton. There's one really, really important fact I wanted to include in here, and I couldn't really find a logical place in the story to put it. So here it is. Tom Cotton eats a lot of birthday cake. Seriously, asked by the New York Times if he had any guilty pleasures, Cotton said, quote, The guilty pleasure 
of eating birthday cake. Most days. With ice cream. Early on, when my wife and I were dating, we went to the grocery store, and I told her that sometimes I just buy birthday cakes, and I eat them. And she said, really? I do too. Anyway, onward to the Trump era. Donald Trump, his biographical background couldn't be farther from kind of a Jimmy Carter peanut farmer, right? I mean, it couldn't be farther from that. And yet it's embraced, right? Because you're one of them when there's so little on the surface, right, that seems to explain that. Trump does have something in common with Republicans of years past. Some of the same people who built the party into what it is today worked on Trump's campaign. It goes back to California Governor Ronald Reagan, who in a very important 1980 campaign speech in Mississippi said, quote, I believe in states' rights. I believe in people doing as much as they can for themselves at the community level and at the private level. And I believe we've distorted the balance of our government today by giving powers that were never intended in the Constitution to that federal establishment. Who runs Ronald Reagan's campaign in the South? That, that was Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort was a Southern field director, right? Eight years later, we get another cameo, Roger Ailes. Who made the Willie Horton ad, right, against that, you know, really tapped into fears about prisoners being released, violent offenders, and just happened to be, in this case, right, you know, an African-American man, this Willie Horton ad. That was Roger Ailes, you know, a young Roger Ailes working to with Roger Stone, though Roger Stone denies that he was part of it in some interviews. It's some of the same people. You know, there's a lot of speculation about kind of this southernization of America. You do have out-migration, legit people who lived in the South who don't live there anymore and kind of carry it with them. But you also just have a what symbols mean change to people over time. And this, we do see Confederate flags. There's Confederate monuments outside of the region. We see Confederate flags in lots of places and they've come to mean to many people just kind of a a white nationalism or kind of a white pride. Like Ernie Dumas said earlier, this isn't just the South. I spoke with Tamika Edwards, who is executive director of the Social Justice Institute at Philander Smith College in Little Rock, a historically black college. When we look at the history of our country from 1619, looking at four centuries of what racism has done to our country and how it feels that it is baked in. So, you know, I don't think that's unique to places like the South or places that have been segregated. Racism is alive and well throughout the country because it's a part of our country's DNA. It goes back into many of our country's documents and practices and laws. And so it still plays out, even though it is not so overt, those practices are still there because it seems as though they're passed down from generation to generation. You can change laws, but you can't change necessarily hearts with laws. Edwards previously worked for Arkansas Senator Blanche Lincoln and saw Arkansas change firsthand. When I started with Blanche Lincoln's office, um, 
five out of our six congressional seats were Democratic seats. And many of our constitutional officers, I believe all of our constitutional officers, maybe except for one, they were all Democrats. And our state legislature, our General Assembly, was majority Democrats. Now, all of our constitutional officers are Republican. Um, we have a supermajority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. Many of our county and other local officials connect to the Republican Party. And so we've recently had a public policy that wanted to reduce SNAP benefits. And SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition um, Assistance Program, which was formerly known as food stamps. And so to change it in a way that people would not be able to go buy certain kinds of foods in the grocery stores because they wanted to restrict junk food. And so those kinds of harsh types of, you know, public policy proposals have become or are continuing to come into the state. And so there's just been a shift in the way we see individuals or impoverished individuals in the state and people who need help and support. So why do Arkansans vote for a politician like Tom Cotton, a politician who wants to cut the government assistance that some of them depend on? And this isn't just Arkansas. Oftentimes, some of America's poorest counties are some of its reddest. Poverty is a huge issue in our state. About 25% of um, Arkansans live below the poverty level. Arkansas has been a poor state uh, from the time it became a territory and a state. It was uh, uh, not the poorest state in the country. It was next to the poorest state in the country. The economy is, um, for a lot of people, it's an idea. So unless it's a policy that's very concrete very concrete, something they can touch or feel that changes their life, right? Then the identity component is powerful. And honestly, I think some GOP strategists really learned some of it watching George Wallace, because George Wallace did not define himself by who he was as much as he campaigned about what he was not. You know, we, it's called positive polarization, right? So he's not a hippie agitator, long hair, pinhead intellectual, right? He's not that. And so even people who may didn't like George Wallace personally or maybe didn't quite buy it, they knew what he was not, right? And they didn't want to be that. And so it aligns people kind of against a common them or a common enemy. Sometimes enemy is even too strong a word, just like that is not me, right? That is not my values. So Obama was elected in 2008. In 2009, there was a deeper conversation about the Affordable Care Act. And there were all kinds of anger associated with the Affordable Care Act. And ultimately, that's when Blanche was up for re-election in 2010 and was not re-elected. And so it would be foolish to say that it didn't have anything to do with race. 
and you know a lot of people will shy away from these racial conversations, but I think it's important for us to hit it head on and not be so secretive about it. And I think while we saw a shift happening in the state, I think it was an even bigger shift once President Obama became president. Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's just the, the, the racial resentment uh, that's deeply ingrained in white people in every place where there has been uh, some African-American population. And it's a driving force uh, in our national politics now, the, uh, the issue of immigrants and the, the nativism that's, uh, that's being expressed uh, both in the White House and now growingly in, in the Congress against uh, immigrants. Uh, it's just virtually the same attitude, the acceptance of people who don't look like you and don't talk like you. So where does that leave our actual subject? Senator Tom Bryant-Cotton. Well, I, I think the common perception is Tom Cotton is a rising star in the Republican Party. He was treated that way when uh, when he first got elected to the Senate. He's good-looking, and he's, a, uh, I guess, a war hero. He won a bronze star. I, I assume he was a, a virulent, uh, brave uh, combat warrior. So I, that stands him in good stead. He supports uh, Donald Trump. He's taken these... Uh, Tough stance about uh, war. He's a he's he's for war, uh, and he differs with with I think Donald Trump in some respects. But that's a kind of a muted difference. But I think he's uh, as as good a candidate as the Republican uh, has for the future after after Donald Trump. After a party loses a national election, all we do is just analyze it to death. I mean, we dissect it. That postmortem is like you know, goes on and on and on for months. And if Trump wins again in 2020, which I think the chances are good, or it's definitely possible for him to win again, then the party won't do that postmortem. And you're going to see more of the same, right? More of kind of the extreme. If Trump were to be defeated, then you're going to have factions within the party that start saying, where did it all go off? Where do we lose that path to electoral college? What do we do? Too often, we think one candidate's gonna, you know, save it all. And the truth is, the Republican Party spent decades building their infrastructure in the South. And If Democrats want to compete in southern states, they've got to invest in the same way. I mean, Arkansas is prime for an independent to run for something, but we just don't see it very often, right? And so it is a very, very red state now. It was very recently not. And that means it's prime to have good two-party competition. And so I would just hope that young people get involved and make it a contest of ideas I think it's important to not just vote, but to vote and do something else. I think it's important to do something leading up to a vote, getting involved, talking with legislators or other elected officials, doing the homework, the research. And so it is not enough to just vote. So we must vote, but it is not enough to just vote. We have to use our voices to understand the issues, to be able to explain the issues to other people, and to stay connected to the issues even after someone is elected. 
And so, you know, it is one thing to speak out against something, but it's another to make sure that you speak out and then have a plan of action afterwards so that you don't expend your energy on something that you don't see moving. Because I think that's when people get discouraged, when they don't see some at least intermediate outcomes. And so I think the antidote is to, to be thoughtful, to strategize, to do the work, to vote, to stay involved, to stay engaged, to understand how things work and um, how things came to be. Understanding how things came to be is really what we're trying to do on this show. And understanding how things came to be is critical to understanding where things may be going. Senator Tom Cotton is in part the result of decades of Republican strategy. He's young. He's ambitious. He's very intelligent. And everybody seems to think he's handsome. But his career was built on the back of decades of weaponized racial anxieties and fear of change. A favorite of wealthy donors like Charles Koch. We'll be seeing a lot more cotton, and he might be a Republican candidate for president in 2024. But Arkansas is one of America's poorest states, and it has been for a while. And the man they sent to Washington doesn't support the policies that could change that. But Arkansas is changing. Um, I don't know what's next. I'd, um, other than I lied, I do know what's next. What's next is making sure that we talk to our neighbors and that we talk to one another about a way forward, right? It's easy to become cynical about politics. And I have become cynical at times about politics. But I do know that in order to make change, you just have to keep moving. And so while I may not be able to see a lot of things change in my lifetime, I'm willing to put things in motion so that eventually they will change. And so the way to stop and not be so cynical is to know that if you put good out in the world and you just keep moving, eventually somebody's going to pick it up. And so you just have to keep going. What do Senator Tom Cotton Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Vice President Mike Pence have in common. They're all politicians who have been supported in significant measure by billionaire industrialist Charles Koch. And they're all probably going to run for president in 2024. Next up, Vice President Mike Pence. A sincere thank you to our guests, Ernie Dumas, legendary journalist and author of The Education of Ernie Dumas. Tamika Edwards, Executive Director of the Social Justice Institute at Philander Smith College in Little Rock. And Angie Maxwell, Director of the Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society and Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Arkansas. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, Senior Producer and Writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Additional writing from PJ Evans. Production support from Pedro Alvira. Rob Baynard, Amanda Earl, and Margot Wall. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, Nancy Hahn, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Roger Reno, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out.